we are truly blessed when we recognize that life is a gift around us and we have gratitude for that. And that's a countercultural message uh, here in the season when all the world around us is telling us that you don't have nearly enough and uh, we need to go acquire more, more, more for ourselves and look to our money and our stuff to fulfill us, to fill that hole in our soul. And of course, uh, what we know is there, of all those things, there's no greater joy, there's no greater blessing than the relationships that we have with God and with each other. And so this weekend, as we said, marks the beginning of Advent. And uh, the word Advent, just, I know not everybody like grew up with Advent, so just a little explanation for some of us um, who Advent is kind of a new thing too. Uh, uh, the word Advent literally means the coming. Advent means coming. The very focus of Advent it invites us to put our hope in God and not in what money or what even people can offer us, not in what we can achieve or possess or grasp at, um, not in what we can control or predict. Advent invites us to trust in God is faithful, that God is faithful, that he is with us, that he is for us, uh, that God is working all things for our good. And so if you're like me, maybe you didn't grow up with Advent and, you know, basically the calendar for you went Thanksgiving Day and then the next day was Christmas and Christmas just lasted you know, like for a whole month. Uh, and that, that's cool. But I'll give you this. This is a little plug for maybe inserting a little Advent into your life. And it is this. What Advent can be, especially again in this age that we live in, Advent can be like a spiritual uh, inoculation, a vaccination against the greed and the materialism that Christmas can turn into in our secular culture, right? Uh, it, Advent invites us to uh, recognize that God is present with us in our lives. It invites us to be hopeful and to be generous with our resources and the opportunities that he's given us. Now, one of the things that makes this a challenge, this sort of, you know, this idea of we want to be more kingdom-minded, this is a great challenge for everybody, but especially uh, if you have kids. And that is because if you have kids, you're probably, you're probably trying to do all the right things, right? Just like me, we're trying to do all the right things. You're trying to teach your kids the real reason for the season, right? Because they're all talking about Santa and you're like, yeah, but don't forget about Jesus, right? right? So you teach them the real reason for the season. You want, at the same time, you want to, you know, you want your kids to enjoy Christmas. You want it to be magical for them because you love them and you love your kids. You want them to have that incredible moment on their face, you know, when they open the thing on Christmas morning. At the same time, you're wrestling with, I don't want to raise little spoiled brats and them grow up to be these monsters who just are entitled to, you know, they just want everything. And uh, they, you know, you want them to understand the value of a dollar. I was talking to a friend the other day, you know, like he's teaching his kids like these principles about saving and budgeting and because he wants them to understand the value of a dollar. You also want them to learn the incredible blessing of blessing others. Like what a blessing that is. What is it? We we're all trying to teach our kids. Like the, nothing feels better than giving something away. And when your kid's like seven, they're like, yeah, right right? Because they're like, no, nothing feels better than getting a present, right? But you're trying to teach them, no, 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 there's really a blessing in giving away. At the same time, man, the things that kids want nowadays, right? It's not like toy trains. It's, it's $1,000 iPhones, right? Or $200 Lego ice castle from the movie Frozen. I may have just had to look up how much that is. And I was like, oh my Lord, this is Legos. And uh, yeah, what is a Christ-following family to do? And if you're like me, 
One of the things we often do, you know, as you're walking through the toy store, we don't, do you walk through toy stores anymore? You, you think, you're going through Amazon toy store, whatever you do, uh, you walk through Target or whatever. Is, if, if you see something, if you're anywhere, and you know, the thing, you see the kid, he's like saying, I want that, I want that, I want that. And you're kind of frustrated. The thing that we want to say immediately that sort of shuts down the conversation really cleanly is what? We can't afford that. We can't afford that. I mean, that's a very helpful phrase to use because it just ends the conversation. We can't afford that. May I say, that's probably not uh, the best discipleship response. And I've, and I've succumbed to that too. I've said, no, we can't afford it. But really what that does is it implies a couple of things. Number one, it says, if only we had more money. So a kid grows up thinking, I wish we had more money because there's a lot of stuff that I deserved but I just, I didn't get because we couldn't afford it, right? So by golly, I'm going to grow up and make a lot of money. That's what kind of, we're actually teaching our kids. Our, I can't afford it teaches kids. The only thing holding us back from buying more and more, more, more stuff is if we just had more, more, more money. And that's actually the opposite of what the way we see Jesus wanting to mentor us as children of the kingdom, who trust in God, not only to supply our physical needs and our desires, but to supply our joy, to supply our fulfillment. So maybe the better lesson that I'm trying to remember to teach my kids might actually be sometimes to say, you know what, actually, even if we could afford it, that might not be the best way to use the money that God has given us. So we don't want to use excuses. We don't want to rely on some of these cheap and easy excuses just to get the kids off our back or something like this. Rather, let's Let's find appropriate ways to celebrate this coming season uh, in generosity, in modesty, in simplicity. And it's why we're choosing this time of year to do this series that asks, how can we be countercultural during the season when we're actually usually acquiring the most stuff, right? How can we actually get rid of stuff? How could we actually maybe gear down? So before we jump into the scripture today, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for these past few weeks. Before we jump into that, I want to show you a video. It's some really fascinating research done by uh, Dr. Robert Sapolsky of Stanford University. And I remember this from years ago. It was a National Geographic video, like on the National Geographic channel. And, and I found it on YouTube. So we're, and it, sure enough, it was there. It's some research they did years ago on the issue of stress. And what's interesting is, is it shows us that the more stuff we acquire, the pursuit of it, the acquisition of it actually becomes stressful. And then when we have stuff, we stress about the possibility of losing it. So we're, now we're stressed about losing our stuff. And then we go into debt to get it, which adds another layer of stress. And so what the result is this terrible irony where we have the richest people in the world, just objectively the richest people of the world in America, feeling like they're poor. And it, that becomes then an excuse to not be as generous as God would call us to be. And what this leads to, we're also seeing, is this massive amount of dysfunction in our lives, and in our, not only psychologically, but our physical health. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about anxiety and stress and worry, and how that is often attached to stuff in our lives that we pursue and acquire and protect. And what's fascinating is what Jesus was saying 2,000 years ago, science is absolutely affirming today. So uh, just to kind of set this video up, the, there's this thing in us called the stress response. 
And it is a, that wash of hormones um, that are designed to create the fight or flight response. You know, you've heard all this stuff. It's the way I feel when, a, when I see a roach, just to be honest. Um, uh, I don't know why. I mean, I could see a lion and it wouldn't scare me as much as a roach. For some reason, it just, they just weird me out to no end. TMI. But it's, so we have this stress response, this flood of hormones, and it's something that we share in common with the animals, except animals do it much better than we do. Because here's what animals do. They live life unstressed until a moment of imminent danger. And either they have to pursue something to go get food, or they are being pursued as food, right? And they may die at any moment. And at that moment, all the chemicals kick in and they have this fight or flight stress response, right? And so when you watch those National Geographic, you know, the little um, the, the documentaries, and you see the wildebeest out there, you know, and they're just chill. They're just eating their grass, right? They're on the savanna eating the grass. And Dave and Larry and Jane, they're not worried about anything. But then what happens is the lions jump out, right? And they're all running for the life. They're like, Dave, Larry, run, run. There's a lion. They're all running for the life. And then when the danger passes, they find that the animals go right back to their normal settings. Right back. Once the lions give up, or they catch Dave. They're like, ah, uh, sorry, Dave. What do they do? They'll be like right there eating, and they're just poof, go right back to eating. Uh, they're, they're the grass. They just sort of, the whole herd just shrugs its shoulders and goes back to eating grass. And so they save their stress uh, for when their life is in danger. What do humans do? We create stress when our life is not in danger. Right? And then we create a real danger because the stress we hold on to is actually starting to kill us. It's fascinating. Okay, watch this clip here. We got sound. Here we go. Watch this. If you're a normal mammal, what stress is about is three minutes of screaming terror on the savanna, after which it's either over with you or over with. Over the last three decades, Stanford University neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky has been advancing our understanding of stress, how it impacts our bodies, and how our social standing can make us more or less susceptible. Is the aggregate bad news? And Most of the time, you can find him teaching and researching in the high-achieving, high-stressed world of brain science. Paper is this huge contrast between classical. But that's only part of his story. For a few weeks every year or so, Sapolsky shifts his lab to a place more than 9,000 miles away on the plains of the Masai Mara Reserve in Kenya, East Africa. You live in a place like this, you're a baboon, and you only have to spend about three hours a day getting your calories. And if you only have to work three hours a day, you got nine hours of free time every day to devote to making somebody else just miserable. They're not being stressed by lions chasing them all the time. They're being stressed by each other. They're being stressed by social and psychological tumult invented by their own species. They're a perfect model for westernized stress-related disease. 
because what stress is about is somebody is very intent on eating you or you are very intent on eating somebody and there's an immediate crisis going on. When you run for your life, basics are all that matter. Lungs work overtime to pump mammoth quantities of oxygen into the bloodstream. The heart races to pump that oxygen throughout the body so muscles respond instantly. You need your blood pressure up to deliver that energy. You need to turn off anything that's not essential. Growth, reproduction, you know, you're running for your life. This is no time to ovulate. Tissue repair, all that sort of thing. Do it later if there is a later. When the zebra escapes, its stress response shuts down. But human beings can't seem to find their off switch. We turn on the exact same stress response for purely psychological states, thinking about the ozone layer, the taxes coming up, mortality, 30-year mortgages. We turn on the same stress response, and the key difference there is we're not doing it for a real physiological reason, and we're doing it nonstop. After a while, the stress response is more damaging than the stressor itself because the stressor is some psychological nonsense that you're falling for. No zebra on earth running for its life would understand why fear of speaking in public would cause you to secrete the same hormones that it's doing at that point to save its life. Uh, I'm so stressed speaking in public. Here we are. I, there's two things I love about that cliff. Uh, I, I, he looks like Jesus to me. I feel like that's what Jesus would look like if he was, came back as a scientist. But I, I love, <laughs> number two, I love the quote, this is no time to ovulate. That's great. I've got to get that on a t-shirt or something. Um, but you catch his point, right? It, our body uh, just shuts down all the stuff that it needs to in those moments. And then, uh, you know, we go back to regular life to, but in that moment of crisis, in you know, imminent danger, we, everything ramps up. But if we live that way, normally everything starts shutting down. That, everything starts shutting down. I was reading about ulcers. Um, you know, in the, in the old days, old, 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 old days, it was kind of understood. It was just sort of like common sense, like ulcers happen when you get stressed. Like, you know, stressed out people, you get an ulcer. And then we discovered back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and 80s and all that, they discovered that bacteria actually causes ulcers. There's a bacteria. And so that reversed all the traditional thinking. And then the scientists said, no, there's no link between stress and ulcers. It's actually just bacteria. But then in the 90s, we found out, actually, the truth is everybody has that bacteria. Everybody has that bacteria, but ulcers happen in people who are stressed out because the, what the stress is doing is, is shutting down the immune system. The stress shuts down the immune system. It turns the body into this perpetual fight or flight mode, which leads to all sorts of illnesses and, and breakdowns in our body. But you know, it's really fascinating. As I was, I was looking at this further and now what they are finding, science is discovering that there are certain things in our body that when they get corroded through stress, they can be rebuilt in our body under the right conditions, when the right chemicals, the right hormones are, are released. And do you know what they're finding leads to rebuilding the body? You're going to think I'm making this up. It's relationships. Relationships. They have, all the studies are showing this. Having others-centered relationships in your life 
being other, others-focused as the default setting in our daily lives. There's almost nothing else, say the scientists now, that helps us de-stress from our own worries. And it's not because other people are like always easy to deal with. You know, sometimes people are a challenge for sure. But what happens is the focus of our constant thoughts, our thoughts and our desires, that moment by moment obsessions, they become removed from that constant self-evaluation of how do I feel as the center of the universe? Now, how do I feel as the center of the universe? Right? And now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that self-evaluation is bad by any means. No, no, no. That are, you know, introspection is, is a very important thing. Knowing yourself, being in touch with your, your feelings and your motivations. It's very, very valuable, as any therapist will tell you. But it's kind of like, think of it like that fight or flight response in animals. So what we do, you know, when we're, when we're going through something, we're, you know, learning something about ourselves. You introspect, you discern, you acknowledge, and then you move on. You move on back to being an other-centered person. You don't stay in fight-or-flight mode. So you don't remain in per- perpetual self-absorption. And, and when you commit to actually l- interacting with other people out of love for them rather than just out of the seeking self-care, something amazing happens. In the process, what you'll do is you'll You'll look back on the day, you'll look back on the week, and it might have been a really busy week, but you'll look back on it and discover that somehow you have been walking in a joy and a peace that is often missing when we're spending all the time seeking joy and peace for ourselves, right? We seek something else, and all of these things are added to us, right? Someone said that once. Now, something else. This isn't about finding romantic love. That's a very different thing. So it's not about saying, well, I've got to find the person to fall in love with, right? Or I've got to find that right, those moments to experience, those romantic moments. It's actually, no, I just need to give myself in love of others. Make myself an others-focused person. And you might say, well, you know, I need to find somebody to love me, uh, or I can't find anybody to love me. Well, that's really only if you're looking for Prince Charming or, you know, Mrs. Wright or something like that, because there's actually all around us a lot of underprivileged people out there who need to be loved, who are desperate to be loved. It's easy to find somebody. So the secret for finding healing for ourselves might include, in addition to other things that are good for us, but it might include saying, I'm going to show compassion to someone, or I'm going to go and volunteer at that thing, or I'm going to go and be a friend to someone who has no friends. And there's plenty of opportunities. And this is how Jesus calls us to live. This should be the norm for disciples, for apprentices who have made Jesus their Lord. So, okay, let's get in. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. This is our final uh, edition of, of this series that we're in. We're looking at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to finish the chapter. We're going to start in verse 25 today. Jesus has been saying some amazing things in line with what we've been talking about. And the first thing he says here in this scripture, you see, what's the first word? Therefore. Therefore. 
And that is because uh, that connects what Jesus is about to say with what he has already been saying. And what he's been talking about is, uh, if you remember, you know, we're focusing on appearance. He's been talking about not storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven, but in, uh, or, or on earth, but, but storing rather things in heaven. And so that our heart will be focused there. And those eternal things that last forever, focus on those things rather than things that corrode or are eaten away. Those are the relationships that we have with God and with other people. And, and as we've said over the last couple of weeks too, we all come from relationship. The, the relationship that existed before the dawn of time itself is that just interloving relationship of God, right? That, that Trinitarian, that Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that relationship they have. So we are here. We come out of that. That's in our DNA. We are here by relationship, for relationship, and it is to relationship we will return for judgment and for blessing, right? And at the core of the universe that we live in is a God who is love. He doesn't just love. He's not loving. He is love. And that's why we're wired this way. And it's why living in these loving, compassionate, caring connections, that's what we're made for. And the further we stray away from that, we get distracted by just stuff and culture, the further we leave our environment that we're created for, and we're drifting away from what we're called to do. So Jesus, he's been teaching all of this. He's been teaching, remember, you can't serve God and mammon, your, your, all your stuff. And then he says this, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat and drink, and about your body, and what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. And the word look here, in the original language here, it means to focus. He's, he's really giving kind of a big, bold, hey, check this out. Give your attention to this. Make it a habit to meditate on this. Look at the birds of the air. He says, they don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? A couple of things about this verse I find interesting. First of all, he says, they don't reap or store away in barns. So they don't do what farmers do, right? He says, but your Father takes care of them. Now, he's not encouraging laziness or inactivity, He's not saying that because, you know, birds don't store anything away in a, in, a, in a barn. Actually, birds are very active, right? Is there any animal that works harder than a bird? They're spending their entire day. They're, they're working all day, building their nest, taking care of their young, getting food. So God cares for them through that process of labor. So Jesus isn't encouraging a passivity, you know, just a nation of couch potatoes. He's not saying that, but he is encouraging here a mentality that he's using this imagery to help us focus on what's important. He's not really giving us a technical teaching on spend this many hours a day working and then this many hours a day at rest. He's not saying that so much. It's have the mentality of not stressing out, right? That's covering the basics and, and he's not stressing out about it. it may, make that your focal point. And so we can learn from the birds, he says, because your heavenly father takes care of them. Verse 27, he says, can any of you, by adding a, a single hour to your life, some of your translations, if you have your Bible, if it might say a, a single cubit to your height, strangely enough, the Greek can mean both. Hour of your life or cubit to your height. Um, the phrase can mean either one. Basically, can worrying make you grow taller or live longer? No. <laughs> In fact, it probably stunts your growth and kills you quicker, <laughs> right? <laughs> so the worry that 
it is ironic. The worry that we devote our, our, you know, the greatest amount of our dread and our fear to dying actually leads to a shorter, less healthy life. And Jesus is, he's pleading with us. He's pleading with his disciples to have a new mentality, take on a new mindset. He says, and why do you worry about clothes? Why do you worry about clothes? Some of you are probably thinking, I wish Scott would worry about his clothes a little more. His shirt's a little wrinkled. I get it. He says, see how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. So he's using a metaphor here to, to teach us about our focus. He's talking about our focus. He's saying that when you see the flowers, when you see the birds, notice what real beauty is what real peace is. Stop striving after. Stop worrying about appearance and acquisition, these things. Let these things in nature, they can be a kind of a touch point for us to grab hold of, right? To help us to have right thinking. In verse 30, he goes on, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, and he's talking about uh, tall grasses back then, that would have been the fuel for their kilns and things. They would get that tall grass and fuel the kiln. He says Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? That little phrase I love, just doing a little look into that. This is a phrase that, believe it or not, it doesn't appear in any other Greek source or literature from Jesus' day. It seems to be a phrase that he coined himself. And it's actually, in the Greek, it's one word. It's this little name he calls, sometimes he calls his disciples this. He says, oh, you little faiths. It's just a word. It just means little faiths. I just think that's so cute. <laughs> you bunch of little faiths. In verse 31, he says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans, that, and that's not really a judgmental word. That's the, it's literally the word ethnos. It's, it means just everybody, all the cultures of the world. For everybody, this is the system, the system we live in. They run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. <clears throat> he knows you need them. He's aware of what's going on. Isn't that a comfort? That's a comfort to me that God is aware of what's going on in your life. He really is. You're not bringing him news that he didn't know. So, you know, we take him to him, our prayer. We take him to the cry of our heart. And he's already there. He goes, oh, I'm so glad you, you brought that to me. I mean, I already knew it but I'm glad you brought that to me. That just is a comfort to me. He's aware of what's going on. And what he's telling us is that people who, you know, haven't really latched onto this kingdom idea yet. They're still just in the systems of the world, not disciples, the culture at large. Uh, those are the people who pursue these things. And that's how the world is wired. So it raises a question for us that we've asked the last couple of weeks. How does the fact that I follow Jesus, how does that clearly distinguish me from the pagans? He's making a contrast here. How does it distinguish me? When we look at everything from, from my wardrobe to my, my bank account, to the things that I care about, that I worry about, that I spend my money on, that I fret about, how does that show that I am radically different than the culture at large? You know, we said last week, if they if they hauled you before the court and they did an audit on your finances and accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? He says this, but, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things. 
will be given to you as well. So this is interesting. It's not that these other things are bad, right? These aren't sins. These aren't sinful things. They're just other things. But you know, the truth is, let's be honest, your danger, my danger is probably not having nothing to wear. I mean, literally. Your danger is opening the closet and saying, I have nothing to wear. When you probably have more than you need and more than most people around the world. And so you, what do you do? We go out and we get something else. Uh, and that's our danger. The danger is not actually starving to death or being chased by a lion. The real danger, starving to death is a real danger for some people in this world. It's usually not our danger. Uh, so this is really pertinent for us. And Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and the other things will take care of themselves. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So those wildebeest out there in the field, you know what they're not doing? You know what has never entered into, that they can tell, has never entered into the mind of a wildebeest? I wonder if that lion is going to be here tomorrow. Isn't that something? They're not thinking about tomorrow. Because probably, yeah, the lion's going to come back tomorrow, right? They're going to get hungry again. But why worry about it? Tomorrow will take care of itself. We'll run for our lives. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, Larry and Jane and the rest of us will escape. But, you know, it, hopply it won't be my day. But someday it might be, you know. But we don't, we don't stress over that. Be present today. Are you alive today? Are you sitting here alive today? Are you breathing? Amen. That's a gift. Are you loving other people the way you should love today? Are you dearly loved by God today? Yes. That's good news. That is a gift. Then today is a good day. You are loved by God. You are alive. And that's all we need to know. Tomorrow will be a good day if we're alive tomorrow. And you'll be loved by God and you'll have an opportunity to love others tomorrow. And if you're not alive tomorrow, guess what? You won't be worrying about it. Right? You'll be in his presence. And so live today and don't worry. Don't worry, because he walks with us. He walks with us and he talks with us, right? He's with us. He never leaves us. Not even death can separate us from the love of God. Amen. Not even the worst, right? Amen. You're still in the love of God. He actually says, let tomorrow work, worry about itself. You have enough worrying, you don't have to do it. Now, uh, I want to say one thing about this word worry. It's fascinating. It's this word, you know, I, I know, I'm a, I'm a nerd, the Greek words. But marimnal is this word marimnal. It's actually just the word for to care. To care. Uh, to care strongly about something, for something. And in fact, did you know it's used positively throughout the New Testament? Yeah, it is. It says that we are to care, to marimnal, um, about the things of God. We are to marimnal, to care about each other as brothers and sisters. Husbands and wives are called to marimnal, to care for one another. So care itself is a good thing. It just means you're not self-absorbed, right? Care is a good thing. Jesus is saying caring is a wonderful, it's a beautiful thing that's good. It becomes bad when you care about things instead of people. So when you care about stuff, 
When you care about stuff, then you're worried about the future of it, and it creates this anxiety, and it takes you off your game, and it takes you away from, you know, the environment you were created for, the way you were wired, the way you, what you were made for. So stop caring, really. I mean, it, it would be a very scriptural thing for us to just shrug our shoulders and say, I don't really care, right? Jesus would say, that's exactly what I said. Way to go. You don't have to care. Now, of course, that takes context. I understand. Uh, this is not the soundbite you would want your teenagers to hear and walk away quoting, I don't care, right? Because that's just apathy, right? There's, there's a difference there. And, and, and if, but if your teenager comes to you and says, you know what, I, I really don't care about stuff and I don't care about acquisition, praise God, you did a good job, right? And if they come back and say, that's why I don't have to get a job, <laughs> then you say, hold on a moment. Uh, because you're not getting the job for you. You're getting the job so you can earn money, so you can live simply and you can give it away and you can care about the right things and you can be a positive force for the kingdom, be a blessing to other people. That's why we go to work. It's why we get up in the morning. Amen? Because we want to care about the right things. So Jesus says caring about the wrong things is not good for us. Uh, the other favorite thing I have about this scripture is the word for trouble. It's the Greek word Kaka. So that's just, I'll leave that. Don't worry about the kaka today. Tomorrow's going to have its own kaka. Okay. So, okay. So if caring about, if we're supposed to care about the right things and caring is good if we care, what should we, what should we be caring about? Jesus ultimately tells us, he tells us in verse 33, he says, we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's it. That's the stuff we should care about. And so kingdom, remember, kingdom, we talk about that a lot. It's this sort of mysterious word. Feels like a very old-fashioned word, but kingdom is the domain within which Jesus is Lord. It's not talking about like heaven, the sweet by and by after you die. It's talking right now, the kingdom is among us. It's here. Jesus said the kingdom has come. So the kingdom is when, is when his will and his ways reign in your life here on earth. You're, you're walking in the kingdom. You're being a kingdom citizen right then. And the use of the words king and kingdom mean that we have surrendered ourselves up to him as our true Lord, that we have one master, one mentor, the one we follow. We're not just intellectual fans of Jesus. We are his apprentices. We've, we've, we've surrendered ourselves to him. And we say to Jesus, teach us how to live. And we will, we will do that. And the kingdom is not just uh, an individual relationship, you know, of the, of the subject to the king, but it's also the relationships that the subjects of the kingdom have with each other, right? So as kingdom people, we have a relationship with each other. As we apply the lessons that we're learning from King Jesus in our relationships with one another, and then together as a kingdom in our relationship with other kingdoms, what we, what we accept, what we don't accept in those relationships, right? We're able to do that. So he says first, he says his kingdom. So we live in this earthly kingdom. Us, we live in America. Um, and so we have a culture that preaches a, a certain uh, set of ethics. And there's a certain sort of civic religion. And many parts of that are wonderful. And we're very blessed uh, to, to happen to get to live here. Um, but it is not the kingdom that defines my ultimate loyalty. It's not, it's not the empire that de defines how I live. We live according to the kingdom culture of Christ. And so where those places, when those two kingdoms divide in their values, we go with the kingdom of Christ, you know, right? And then it says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. His righteousness, and now in this context here, it's not just the gift of salvation that, uh, you know, itself, but it is the righteousness 
that results from salvation in the form of right living. In right living. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus really is talking a lot here. It's not just about our thoughts. He's really talking about the what we do. That really seems to matter to Jesus. The way we live. Our actual habits that we develop. So he contrasts the righteousness of the Pharisees, which is doing a lot of, of religious stuff. You know, they were head bobbers. They were like said all the right things um, and performed the right rituals. They would perform religious stuff, but it didn't really impact how they live day to day, relationally with the people around them, right? And he says, don't do that. What Jesus is calling for us to have is an inside-out transformation. The Sermon on the Mount is where, where Jesus teaches us to go and to live compassionately, to live in an other-centered way and treat people the way, that way we would want to be treated. And that's his righteousness, kingdom and righteousness. That's what we, what we live for. Of course, we have a problem, as we've been identifying over these last few weeks, and that is, as we move along this process, we sit here and we hear this. This feels really, it feels something, you know, hopefully you're thinking, this feels right. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm on board. We move along this process. We get to the point, though, where we get bogged down. We make decisions. You know, we make a decision. We want to investigate Jesus. We, we get to know Christians. We go to church. Maybe we read the Bible. We ask some questions and we become a Christian. We get baptized. We get mentored. We're in. And then we hit a roadblock somewhere along the way where we have a hard time very often uh, of uh, making that next step to actually applying the things that we learn. That's very common. So it doesn't make you evil, just makes you human. We have a hard time applying those things. It's like we plateau. And then we learn a new thing we need to do to fully follow Jesus as an apprentice. And so we do that loop that we've been talking about where we're like, yeah, no, 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 totally. That's great. I get what you're saying. I believe it, but we don't actually do it. And so we need like these mechanisms to help us take the next step. And so I've been encouraging us to consider making some December resolutions, December resolutions, not waiting Till January because then it's just too late, right? The damage is all done by January 1st. So making December resolutions, these are a few that we've introduced over the last few weeks. I've committed, I will not buy things to be seen, but to live. I will not give to be seen, but to bless. We even talked about that uh, discipline of, of hiddenness when we give. I will spend less in order to give away more. Those are commitments that we can make. And, and uh, here's one more. I'm just going to add one more to our list today, and that is, I will spend this month prioritizing relationships with people over non-life-giving obligations to the season. I got that in quotes because we all know what obligation to the season is. It can, it can look like different things. It can look like, you know, all the, the office party you got to go to or the thing you got to show up at and this, that, and the, the name you drew that you got to go buy the present for. It's all these kind of things. It's the, all the obligation and the thing at the school and I got to go to this and the kids are doing this play and I've got to, you have all these obligations. The, this month, here's the thing, this month of all months is where we are bombarded with messages that tell us what we have to do, what we, what we should buy where we have to show up, what we should wear, what we should watch, you know, even the movies you're supposed to watch this, this month, what you have to hang on your house. I'm feeling all this pressure. All my neighbors look so much better right now. They've, they're already like just years, light years ahead of me I'm decorating the house. There's this pressure. Oh, I got to make time to put stuff on the house. 
what we should value, what we should prioritize. You'll never be more tempted to conform to the expectations and the obligations and the pressures and the demands of the season. Right? They don't even call it Christmas. They just call it the season. <laughs> and, and they'll never try harder. By they, I just mean culture. They'll never try harder to make you lose sight of what really matters and who really matters. And if you're a Christ follower, people matter. People matter. So, so what if you and I, what if we celebrate the coming of the Christ child as people who worship that, that Christ we celebrate his coming to the planet by making a vow to prioritize people over plans. To value relationships over retailers. To slow down and spend more time with family and friends. To spend time with people who are less fortunate than the time we spend on Amazon and Walmart.com. To invest, invest more into the kingdom than to the federal economic machine bottom line. What would that look like? What would it look like? And, and I would just say, why not try it for one Christmas? Just try it this year and see. If four weeks from now you look back and you've hated it, right? Then just knock yourself out next Christmas. Max out the credit cards and do whatever you need to do. But what if, what if you found on December 25th, that morning when you wake up, that you and your family, this whole Advent season, have actually loved Christmas again. Like, loved it. And what if you stopped running from lions who aren't even there, right? And just enjoyed the world that God has made. Enjoyed and really embraced, like, the mission that he puts you here for, which is to love other people. To love other people. That is life that is priceless. That's a joy that money can't buy. Amen? Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father God, for the teaching of Jesus. Thank you for the teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be a people who are not given to caring about things of the world and, and pouring our, all of our energies into stuff. But may we see the stuff that we do have, may we see that as tools, as opportunities to, to increase relationships in our life, to be a blessing to others. May we see the resources that we have access to, Lord God, as opportunities to expand your kingdom of love. We thank you, Lord God. May we seek first your kingdom in your righteousness. And I ask that your Holy Spirit, Lord God, would continue to be our teacher, would continue to mentor us, Lord God, in this, even as we leave this place. Thank you, Father, for challenging us through the words of Jesus. Thank you for allowing us to get to have a glimpse into the life of Jesus and the way he lived. Help us to be courageous, to live as true followers of Jesus this season. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Would you stand to your feet with me today? Our prayer partners are coming forward. And if there's anything you need prayer about before you leave, make sure you come. Don't, don't leave not having brought your, your prayer need before these guys. They would love to pray with you in faith. Whatever it is, you can tell them and they will, they will just, they, I mean, these guys are like superheroes. They know the perfect 
prayer. They're going to pray with you. And uh, if you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time today, maybe you've been far from God for a long time, or maybe you've just never really made that commitment to Jesus. This is a great moment, the beginning of Advent, Advent Sunday. Come and let them pray with you and help you to take that next right step in your life. We love you guys so much. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and pour out his mercy in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you.